So Hebrews chapter 6, beginning of verse 9, it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You know, I remember when we were in Oatana, and going to church down there, they had a Christian school. And they had had a discussion previously about the involvement of sports in the school. And I remember a statement that was made by the principal of the school at that time. And he argued in favor of having sports in the school for the students to participate in. Because he said that sports helped them to learn to win with humility and to lose with dignity. I thought, man, that is a good way to put it. As long as you actually use the sports to do that, we experience both of those in life. We, we win some in life and we lose some in life. And if we can win with a measure of humility and lose with a measure of dignity, then we've learned a valuable lesson. You know, when I look back at my participation in sports through elementary school, junior high and high school, there was something else that it built within my life. And that is that there were times in sports when you just wanted to give up, when you just wanted to quit. But you couldn't. The thing that comes right to my mind more is, is the things that our coaches willingly inflicted on us as they tried to get us in shape. When they'd have us run sprints and run stairs and all these things. I remember when I was a senior in high school, our coach, he uh, took on kind of an assistant coach, which was going to be the junior high coach. And their season didn't start yet. And so this guy came to our team and he was put in charge of our conditioning. He said, I can't guarantee you're going to be a better wrestler than everybody that you wrestle against. He says, I will guarantee you, you are going to be in better shape than anybody else. And so this guy started about a month into our wrestling season, which means we were already pretty good shape. Our practices started out with 30 minutes of stairs before the coach even showed up. And at the end of the practice, when the basketball team was done with the court, then we'd go out and run sprints on the basketball court or do some weightlifting. And when he took over, he made some of us throw up the first couple days. He ran us so hard. After practice... We'd go into that basketball court and he'd make us do 25 full court sprints down and back. And so you're running across the gym full out 50 times. And if he caught anybody dogging it, he added five. You just, you just buckled down and you did whatever you had to do because you weren't going to be the reason that the whole team had to run five more. There was times when you'd get to the other end and we'd put our hands on our knees every time and we'd be gasping for air and be thinking, this is crazy. I want done with this. When he blew the whistle, you were running again. And you weren't as fast as you were the first time across, but you were giving it all that you had. And you know what? Later in the season, we noticed that it paid off. There were matches that we more than likely won 
because the other guy ran out of steam a little quicker than we did. I don't know that we lost many matches because we ran out of steam before somebody else. Maybe because we were out-wrestled, but not because we ran out of steam. There are times in life that demand that kind of a thing. There are times in life where you feel like you're frustrated, when you feel like throwing in the towel, when you feel like just, just laying down. The Christians that he's writing to in the book of Hebrews are having the, that kind of a moment. They've been faithfully serving Jesus Christ. They'd committed their life to Christ when they first heard about Him. But they've been going through a lot of pressures and struggles. Um, people turning their back on them. People persecuting them. Making fun of them. Ridiculing them. Taking their belongings or possessions. Even some of them imprisoned. And because of those things, they're struggling. It's kind of like us after 24 sprints and you still got to run another one. They're standing at that line and he's about to blow the whistle. What am I going to do? Because of the hardships in their life, they're considering getting lazy in their faith. They're considering even maybe turning away from it and going back to life the way it was before Christ when they weren't persecuted, when they weren't publicly humiliated, when they didn't have to go through these struggles. And the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to them and saying, you can't do that. In fact, the passage that we looked at last week was a severe warning. If you can turn your back on Christ... If you can get this close to experiencing salvation where you've tasted the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit and the powers of the age to come, where you've gotten this good of a taste and then you turn your back and walk away, you won't be able to be renewed to repentance. You will be eternally condemned. But then he goes into this next part of the passage. There's a change in his tone. He's been warning them very harshly and now all of a sudden he stops and he says, I don't think that's you. We're sure that you're of better things than that. Things that belong to salvation. So whereas he was warning them severely, saying don't turn their back, don't turn away from Christ, and he told them that they'd become dull in their hearing. It's the same word that we have here for sluggish. He says you've become dull in your hearing, so you haven't been growing like you should. He's telling them now you need to, you need to remain committed. You, in fact, you need to take a next step forward and move on in your Christian faith. You know what these people need to be able to do that? They need hope. You know what? That's what we need. When we're in times of struggle, when we're in times of hardship, hope is what motivates us to move ahead when things are hard. Hope is what motivates us to step back up to the line when you feel like you can't breathe. He didn't promise these people that it's going to get easier. He didn't promise them that their property was going to be given back. He didn't promise them they'd be let out of jail. You know what he has been telling them, though, is that it's totally worth the struggle. Is that their relationship with God through Jesus Christ is so much better than anything that they would turn away from Him for that they really need to hang on. And it's through this that He's trying to encourage them and He's trying to strengthen them in their hope. He uses that word hope three different times within the passage. It says, And we desire each one of you to show the same, in verse 11, earnestness and have the full assurance of hope. And so at this point in His letter to them, He says, this is what we want for you. We want you to have full assurance of hope. And then as we get down farther in the passage in verse 18, he says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. And then in verse 19, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. He says, Our desire is for you to have this abundant hope. And at the same time, he says, You have this hope. Now, how can he want them to have it, and they already have it, at the same time? He's saying, look, if you recognize what in Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, 
He, as your high priest, took himself as your sacrifice and offered it up before God. The temple is, has the Holy of Holies in it, where the mercy seat of God was, where they'd sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices. And it had the curtain there. And it says Jesus went in behind the curtain with your sacrifice as your high priest, and he presented that to God. So he says your hope is anchored. It's actually your, it's like an anchor. It goes back to that, that uh, Siemens analogy that he used back in chapter 2. Remember when he told us not to drift on by? And he says it's like you have an anchor. He gives us picture of it like hooked on a throne of God inside the Holy of Holies. And so we are anchored to the very throne of God through our faith in Jesus Christ. They just need to recognize it. He's saying, look, you have such security, such a future in Jesus Christ. You have this awesome hope, but it's not going to do you any good if you don't recognize it, if you don't see it, if you don't trust it. And so he's praying for them and he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to bring them to the point of hope. I think of Judy today. I was talking to, to Jean and Judy last night, as I mentioned earlier, and Judy mentioned something to me. She said, you know what, I don't know how people that don't have Christ go through something like this. She said, how, how do they make it? Where's the hope? And I said, you know what, you're exactly right. Because of my faith in Christ and my understanding of the Word of God, I know where I'm from. I know we were created by God, we're made in the image of God. I also know that we fell into sin with Adam and Eve back in the garden and that sin brings death. And so that's why we're going to experience death. And I know where I'm going. Even in my death, there's purpose. And you know what the purpose is in my death? Not the how I die, but the fact that I will die. That will be a point where I'm drawn even closer to Christ. I'm ushered into His presence. And so it's actually a step in my sanctification, in my growth, where I'm ushered in closer to God. So even at that point, there is purpose in my death, and I have a glorious future ahead of me, which means I have a tremendous hope. How do you face that kind of thing without hope? If you face death without Jesus Christ, then you you face death without hope. I would so much rather face death with this hope. Well, these people weren't facing death at the moment. In fact, when he gets later on in the letter to the Hebrews, he's going to tell them, you have not yet resisted unto blood. None of them had been put to death yet. It was more an issue of life, of how they were going to live. Were they going to live their life in hope? Were they going to let that hope be an encouragement to them and give them the strength to go on and being faithful to Jesus Christ? Or were they going to turn and fall away? Well, they're going to go on. He's going to motivate them on. He's going to lead them on. They're going to, like we got to do sometimes, keep on keeping on. And as we do that, as we look in this passage, there's four tools that we find within this passage that give us hope. So if you're struggling in hope here this morning, if you're up against the odds, up against some things, then you're not sure how they're going to work out or how things are going to pan out, then you know what? Here's a few tools that will help you in your hope and help you to stay firm in your relationship and your faith with Jesus Christ. The first tool that we find is encouragement. Encouragement. We find that right off the bat in the beginning. He, his tone changes. He's been warning them, saying, look, you are headed for a Christless eternity if you can turn your back on Jesus. Now his tone with them changes. In verse 9 it says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. So he's saying, I'm thinking about you positively. The things that I've mentioned in the last few verses, he says, I don't picture that happening to you because of your faith that I've seen in your life up till now. 
And so he uses encouragement. He goes on in verse, in verse 10 and says, God is not unjust to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name and the serving of the saints as you still do. And so his tone toward them has changed. He also even uses the word of encouragement in verse 18. He says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to that hope. And so he's encouraging these people. He's saying, you're better than this. You can do this. He's not telling them that by their perseverance that they're earning a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, John Piper put it this way. He said, perseverance does not earn participation in Christ. It verifies participation in Christ. As we talked about a little bit last week. But he's coming alongside of them with some encouragement. And he's saying, you know what? We think better of you. You can do this. You know what? That's a strong thing in our lives. I remember I was even thinking this morning about a, a time when I was in about I was in fifth grade. And I was on a little league baseball team, and my dad was the coach of it at the time. There were two teams from our town, and then a bunch of teams from the other town that was bigger than ours. And we had played the other team from our town earlier in the season, and we lost. And we had a hard time hitting against their pitcher. And we had to play them again. And we were intimidated by it, because we hadn't hit well off that pitcher the last time. And you know what I remember? At a time in our practice, where my dad told our team, he said, We've got the best pitcher in the league. And he was right. We had this guy, his name was Scott Dawes, and he could throw fast and accurate. And my dad said, we've got the best pitcher in the league, and you guys hit off him every practice. And he said, your coaches throw to you too. And when we throw to you, we make sure that we're throwing faster than the other pitches of the league so that you're ready for the other pitchers. He said, so if you're thinking you can't hit off this other guy, you're wrong. You can do it. And I remember the whole team was like, hey, he's right. (laughs) And you know what? We won. We got up there and we hit off of that other pitcher. We did well. We won the game. And it was awesome. And, you know, they're always telling me I remember things differently than they do. If you remember that we lost, don't tell me. I don't want to (laughs) know. But we won. But that encouragement was, that was what we needed. Right then, and sometimes that's all it needs. You know, we're, we're supposed to be here encouraging one another. One of the passages that we're going to come up in when we get to Hebrews chapter 10 says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but we're to gather together regularly. And the point is to encourage one another. Every Sunday when you come in, there might be somebody that just one word from you would make the biggest difference in their life in the things that they're going through right now. You might not even know they're going through anything. Maybe they'll share that with you. Maybe they won't. Sometimes even just a smile and face, even just seeing people, having somebody come up and say something encouraging, something nice to them, something uplifting. And, and we get to be that for other people. Sometimes you might walk away from it and you don't even know the encouragement that you were to them, but you were. And you know, that's, that's, sometimes that's all we need. We're up against something. We're a little scared maybe. We're confused. We're worried. We're struggling. And some just word of encouragement, kindness is all we need to, to give us that, you know what, I can do this. We're going to make it okay. And that's exactly what through the whole book of Hebrews this guy's trying to do. He's writing these people and he's saying, don't turn back. You can do this. If you did turn back, you're in a world of hurt. But you can do this. Step up. In fact, that brings us right into the next tool that he gives them. The next tool he gives them is their own experience. Their own experience. Because notice what it says in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work And the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. So we notice that he he breaks that into kind of two categories. He says one is your past work. He says God is not unjust to overlook the things that you've done in the past. 
And the point that he's making is that in our salvation, in our faith, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it changes our life and it produces work. We serve God. We love the name of God. And that's the motivation for our work that we do. And he's saying, look, you, you have worked. And he's looking at their past and he's saying, look at you, look at how well you've done. In fact, when he gets up to chapter 10, he's going to tell them, you started out good. Even though you were suffering things, even though you started to get persecuted, you were doing well. You were visiting people in prison. You were putting other people's needs before your own. But now you're falling back a little bit. You're struggling. And that's what he's doing in this passage as well. He's saying, look, God, God knows what you've done. And then we've got to go on to the next section. He says what you are still doing. And so even though they had become a little bit dulled in their hearing, even though maybe they weren't growing like they should, they still were, to some extent, serving one another. They still were there. They still were holding one another up. But they're getting tired. And so he says, I can look at your past and look at the things that you did, and you did it with vigor, you did it with energy, you were excited about your faith, you were willing to pay the price for your faith. He said, you're still doing it, you're just not quite as eager anymore, you're not quite as excited about your faith, you're kind of fading that way. But what is the whole point that he's making? If you have done it, if you are doing it, you can continue to do it. You can do this. So he uses their own experience to say, look at what you were in the past. Be that. You're even doing it to some measure now. Just pick it up a little bit. But don't drop it. Don't drop it here. Continue in that way. Continue. You have a great hope. You have an awesome future. Continue to cling to that hope. Not only do they have their own experience, but then he also gives them an example. He starts out with a generic proclamation of that example in verse 12. He says, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now notice there's more than one in in that statement there. It's just kind of a generic statement. In other words, what he's saying is we have examples in front of us that we can learn from. And I'm sure that those people had people within their church that were strong that were still vibrant in their relationship with Jesus Christ, that they could look to and that they could follow their faith. And they could be imitators. They could mimic those people's faith. I remember when I learned how to snow ski. I went up, went down the bunny hill the first time. It was a nightmare. It was tragic. And it was in a place down, I think it was called Afton Alps or something. And I don't know if the hill was really way bigger than our bunny hill that we teach kids to ski on down at Giants Ridge now, or if it just really seemed like it since I was the one at the top and coming down the side. But it seemed much steeper. And I did not do well going down that bunny hill. I got to the bottom, thought I need a lesson. Lisa and I went over, went to take a lesson. The lesson was boring. Some friends came by, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go with them. So I just went with them, and I just followed them. I watched them get on the chairlift. I did what they did. Got to the top of the hill. I said, hey, you guys, go down that bunny hill over there, will you? And I followed them down the bunny hill. And I, all I did was I just I stayed behind them, and I just watched how they shifted their weight, watched what they did, did what they did, made it down the bunny hill without falling. After that, we were on other hills all night long. By the end of the night, I was going down Black Diamonds. Not all of it was on my skis, but I was still making it down. And, uh, but I just, I just mimicked. I just mimicked. Oh, they kind of shift like that. I can shift like that. I just mimicked what they did, and it was successful. Well, they were successful. That's why. And that's what he's telling them, is that you've got people that are successful in this Christian life, that are living out their faith in their life, and mimic them. Do that. Follow 
that example. The Apostle Paul would often give himself and his example, and he'd say, you know what, follow me as I follow Christ. And that's exactly what he does here is he tells them, look, follow those examples. Find people in your life that are doing well and follow their example. Not only does he give that generic example, but then he picks one out, Abraham. And he's going to show with Abraham. He's going to do a lot more when we get to chapter 11. Chapter 11 is all about heroes of the faith. And he's going to point out hero after hero after hero and the things that they were able to accomplish or the things that they were able to suffer. But right now, suffice it to be just one. And he chooses Abraham. Now remember the, the character trait that he's pointing out at the end of uh, verse 12 there. He says, be imitators of those who through what? Faith and patience. Through faith and patience, they inherit the promises. And then it says in verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to, by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, here's the point that he's making. Abraham inherited the promise, but not without faith and patience. It took trust and it took time. We know that Abraham was given the promise that he'd be made into a great nation and then through that nation bless the world. And at that time, Abraham and Sarah had not been able to have children. And God wouldn't make them able to have children for 25 more years. And so Abraham's going to be 75 years old when God gives him the promise. I really hope God doesn't promise me children at 75. But yeah, Abraham's going to be 75. Now remember, it's closer to, to the flood. So he, he lived a little longer there yet. Abraham's going to live, to, I think he lived 145 or something like that. So life was a little bit longer still. It hadn't tapered down to 70 all the way yet. Abraham's given the promise at 75. It wouldn't be until he's 100 that that promise would be fulfilled. And actually, when you think about it, When he's a hundred, that's the birth of Isaac, which means the other part of the promise about becoming a great nation, Abraham's not even going to see in his lifetime. So he's not going to see all of the promise fulfilled until well after his life on this earth. Oh, he's still going to see it because as we talked about Sunday school, God's a God of the living, not the dead. Abraham's still alive. He's just with Christ. He did see the fulfillment of all that, but he wouldn't in his lifetime. And that's the example that he holds up before us. And he says, look at Abraham. Abraham trusted. It took trust and it took time. He took faith and it took patience. And that's what he's encouraging these people to do. He's saying, look, just trust God. Be patient and your patience will pay off. Abraham received the reward. You will receive the reward. May not all be in this lifetime, but you will receive the reward. Be faithful. Be patient. As we look through this, what did he give to Abraham? That's, that's the main thing. What is, it, what is it that God gave to Abraham? He gave him a promise. That's the fourth and the final tool that God gives us to strengthen our hope. He gives us this promise that he gave to, that he gave to Abraham. If we look down through this passage, we're going to find that there are four securities of God's promise. Four different ways that God made that promise secure. It doesn't mean that God's word is any more true than it would be without the oath. But the oath is given, as it says in the passage, as a confirmation. A confirmation of the truth to us. And so what it does, is it doesn't make God's word any more true or any more reliable. You can't make God's word any more true or any more reliable. It just is true and it is reliable. But it emphasizes it, the truth and the reliability of it to us. And so as we look at this passage, the first thing that we see 
that God secures his promise with is his person. Let's read from verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For the people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. And so he's going to talk about this oath, this promise that God makes to Abraham. People often swear by things. When we go into a courtroom, we put our hand on a Bible. And we swear on the Bible that we're telling the truth. Why? What is the point? He said, people always swear by something greater than themselves. They're saying, this thing is greater than myself. I'm swearing on this Bible that this is the truth that I'm about to tell. We do the same thing ever since we're little kids. Little Malachi was explaining to me what a pinky promise was the other day. And he was pretty excited. New information to him. And uh, he's explaining to me about the importance of a pinky promise or how you make a pinky promise. I thought that was pretty cool. I remember when I was a kid, what was that thing you used to say? What about sticking a needle in your eye? and the, Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? And so it's, 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 you put something heavy on you. Nobody wants needles in their eyes. And so it puts something heavy on you, some kind of a burden that way. You've seen the movie The Princess Bride. Wesley is climbing the cliff and at the top is Inugo Montoya who's waiting for a sword fight with Wesley. And he's getting impatient, waiting for Wesley to get up there. And so he says, can you hurry it up a little bit? And he says, this is kind of difficult. And he says, what if I help you? I'll give you my word as a Spaniard. Wesley says, I've known too many Spaniards. He says, I swear to you on the sword of my father, you will reach the top alive. Wesley says, throw me the rope. Wesley knew he won't disgrace the sword of his father. That's what people do when they swear. They swear by things greater than themselves. What does God swear by? If he's going to make an oath... What does he swear by? There isn't anything higher. So what does he swear by? He swears by his, his person. And what, is he, what does he focus on about his person? The, first of all, the position. So when God, in verse 17, desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So, his position, but then also, he swears by his character. God, to whom it is impossible for him to lie. God's promise is trustworthy because he is trustworthy. Because his character, he is, it is impossible for him to lie. So it is impossible to go wrong trusting God. God's person is put up for security for his promise. Not only his purpose, but his, or person, but his purpose. It says he has an unchangeable purpose in that passage that we just read. His purposes have not changed. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ and receive the gift of eternal life and all inherit all the great hope and the great blessings that God has ahead of us, his purpose has not changed just because things start to look tumultuous in our life. He still is working all things together for our good. He still is bringing us to that blessed hope. He still is bringing us to that eternal life. His purpose has not changed and will not change because God doesn't make any mistakes. He doesn't get down a road and say, oh, I went the wrong direction. I need to go back and go the other way. Also, his pledge, he made an oath. He said he wanted to confirm it to us. He wanted to emphasize more strongly for us. And so, not only just his plain word, but he swore by himself. In other words, he gives an oath to highlight that for us in our life so that we know that he means business with it. And then lastly, as we see in the passage, that God also secures his promise through his priest. 
And he ends back where he began. Remember where he began? Highlighting on the fact that Jesus Christ is our high priest. And that because Jesus Christ has gone into the sanctuary, offering himself as a sacrifice, we now have a secure hope. We can now have boldness. It told us in the end of chapter 4, we have to come before the throne of God, knowing that we're heard because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Well, now he's going back to that. In fact, that's when we get into chapter 7 next week. He's talked to me. He's mentioned this guy Melchizedek a couple times. But so far, it's been, you know what? I want to talk to you about Melchizedek because that highlights the ministry of Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. But you're not ready to understand it yet because you haven't learned like you should have. But now, He's going to go into it anyway. (laughs) He's going to say, now, let's learn what we can from Melchizedek. After He spends His time correcting them, warning them, don't fall away. Don't be sluggish in your faith. Don't be dull in your hearing, but rather embrace the hope that you have in Jesus Christ and be steadfast, be faithful to Him because of that hope. Now He's going to be able to lead them into an understanding, a deeper understanding of what Jesus has done for them in the, in the chapter to come.